Okay. As uh, Gus said at the very beginning, today sees the start of a new series that's going to carry us through the summer season, uh, where we're going to be looking and discovering just how amazing, how beautiful uh, this book, the book of Ruth and the story of Ruth is. But before we get there, what we try and do whenever we start a new series as a church is we kind of take a moment to pause and say, well, why this series now? Uh, We don't just literally kind of open the Bible up and think, oh, let's look at that now, um, put a finger in, that'll do. Rather, there is a sense of connection between where we've come from, but also where we're going. And if you've been around here since the beginning of the year, you'll know that we're living as a church under a theme this year of being named. A name for, that reveals our identity and our purpose, that we're named Oasis for a reason in this city. And what we're discovering along the way, that, that an Oasis is all about refuge, rest, refreshment, and restoration. And what we've said is as we seek to enjoy being that together, we're also to then seek individually and together to reveal that wherever we go. That why we've been placed in this city is to reveal how God is the ultimate oasis and how we're here not to build a kind of empire of oasis, putting oasis everywhere, but rather to continue to build his kingdom of what it looks like to live under his rule and reign. And as part of our journey of like discovering more and living more in light of our fact that we've been named Oasis, we've then said, actually, why don't we look to share stories along the way? And so if you're around last Sunday, if we keep back on one side, I want to keep everyone with me, um, that we want to kind of ensure that we kind of share stories. So if you're around last Sunday, you'd have uh, been around to hear just how we heard story after story of people sharing either how they'd known sense of Oasis together, but also how we'd seek to bring Oasis in different places. And so we kind of shared stories in that vein. And even uh, this morning, we'd have heard at the very beginning, just again, a story about how we're seeking to be and reveal Oasis. And if you like, with us looking at Ruth, why we're doing it is because actually we're going to discover through the story of Ruth something of what it means to live up to what we're trying to be. As an oasis, we're going to discover an, a, a story that is phenomenal in how it provides this kind of dialogue and this moments of people getting to know refuge, people knowing refreshment and rest, and ultimately people knowing restoration. And so through this story, we're going to discover actually Ruth and her being named that way actually reveals so much about who we're to be and how much we can learn from her. But more than that, how much we can learn in how she mirrored who God is. And so that's what we're doing in respect to looking at Ruth. Now, we are going to now look at the slide that was flicked on in a moment. Is Our hope is that as we look through this story, we're going to discover some things through this series. Firstly, that this is a story about ordinary life. You see... So often we can look at some of the stories in the Bible, which are amazing, particularly in the Old Testament. You can see these amazing moments of stories that that seem to be this either fire. (laughs) Did you know that? I did that for dramatic effect. Fire! Um, Fire coming from the sky or suddenly like the odds against. And so you've got 300 against 23,000 and it's kind of a huge battle. And if we're not careful, we can think, well, this has no real relevance to my life. And maybe we start to think, well, to live a life with God at the center is to live a life kind of running from one extreme moment to the next and waiting in between of the lulls to think, well, what's going to be the next kind of extreme moment of my life? And yet actually to follow Jesus 
It's all about seeing that he's at the center of every moment of the whole of our life. And actually, our lives, therefore, are ordinary, but they are extraordinary because Jesus is at the center of it. And what we're going to discover through the story of Ruth is it's just a story of ordinary things happening, of needs, of the want for care, of the want for relationship. And ultimately, what we're going to see is it's a story of then restoration. It's an ordinary story, which I promise you will speak to us in our ordinary stories. The second thing we're going to discover through this series is it's a story about identity. We're going to discover through some of the key characters in this story that they understood something about who they are and therefore it affected who they were. And it's so important that we understand who we are because it affects us in respect to how we then live. We're then going to find it's a story of redemption. It's quite a phenomenal story, as we'll get to towards the end. And the, the, the thing challenge is to ensure we don't rush to the end, because we'll then miss the story. But it's a story of redemption, of how we're going to find two characters redeemed, rescued from the situation they were powerless to do anything about. But what we're going to discover is redemption is never the end of the story. See, what you would discover is actually, whenever we find this moment, and for any of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, we've had a redemption moment where we were rescued by him, which is what we celebrate through communion, through his life, death, and resurrection. We've been rescued. That in that moment of redemption, what it causes us to then do is to live lives like we're going to find Ruth did, of redeeming others. Redemption always leads to a redeeming lifestyle. And so we're going to discover this in terms of the story. And then we're going to also discover through this story that this story of Ruth is part of a bigger story. We're going to see by the end that actually Ruth became part of God's plan. God's plan that brought about King David. God's plan that then through King David's lineage was to then bring about Jesus Christ coming to earth. We're going to discover that ordinary stories kind of take moments that God comes and gets involved in our story in order that we then become part of his bigger story. Just because I could see everyone thinking, what's going on there? Just as a quick explanation, because I know that's the first time that's happened. Our kids are um, upstairs um, on the first floor of this building. Therefore, there's a need to connect with parents when we need to. So the most easy way to do that is to actually put things on the screens behind me. So if that happens and your name is up there, it isn't at that point some magical way that we knew you were in the room. It's because you need to go and see your kit. Um, so let's just explain that one. But in this then, what we're going to discover through this story of Ruth is that within our ordinary stories, God wants us to understand that he put, pulls us into his bigger story which is about the rescue and redemption and restoration of the whole of the universe. If you've come here this morning, if nothing else, and you think, man, my life doesn't matter, I promise you, as you discover Jesus, you realize that your life matters because you're now part of such a big story. And God wants to use you in it. But in terms of this morning, then, when do we, where do we start? Well, where I want us to start is by looking at this book. And whenever we look at the Old Testament, it's important that we kind of look at it and examine it in three different ways. And so when we're examining a, a part of the Old Testament, I'd say, firstly, it's, it's important that we ensure that we look at it through a lens of um, 
the original hearers of the story. And so as we examine this book of Ruth, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of put on the, the eyes and ears of the original hearers to ensure that we can get hold of something of what was going on in the moment they heard it. The second thing that we need to do is also not live th- pretending we're kind of the people of God in the Old Testament hearing these stories, because we're not. We're in the 21st century, we're in Birmingham, and for many of us in this room, we're those who have sensed our life on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And in it, as such, we therefore second need to look at any of the stories we're looking at in the Old Testament with the view that we have, that's post-Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And what you find is often the stories in the Old Testament shadow of what is to come and be revealed through Jesus. And so when we look at it, we're going to discover so much of the identity and truth that we have in Jesus that can be revealed to us. Now I'm going to keep going, and so we'll watch it. Now what's going to happen now is I've lost an arm Boy, it's going to be a problem. So if my right leg starts to really kick out, basically it's this side of my body thinking, I don't know what to do. So we'll see how it goes. Um, but in it, so second lens is we look with the understanding that we are post-Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Therefore, when we look at the stories of the Old Testament, Jesus wants us to understand it through his eyes. And we'll get to see so much of it. The third thing is that when we look at a story, is we need to understand the whole of the story in its context. And therefore, it's so important before we dive in, which we will do, that we remind ourselves, or maybe hear for the first time, of the whole of the story of Ruth. And so what I've asked Lucy to do, actually, is for Lucy to read the whole of the story. Uh, I've asked Lucy to do that, because one, she's a way better reader than me, but two, you'll actually want to listen. Um, The other part is that in terms of how she's going to read it, she's going to read it from an interpretation of the Bible of the message. Why we're reading it from there is because the message is written in a way that is written in a story-like fashion. And therefore, it helps us understand the beauty of this story. So I'm going to just hand over to Lucy. Thank you. Thank you. Can you hear me? Excellent. Once upon a time... That's what it says. (laughs) It was back in the days when the judges led Israel, there was a famine in the land. A man from Bethlehem in Judah left home to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. His sons were named Marlon and Kilion. They were all Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They all went to the country of Moab and settled there. Elimelech died and Naomi was left she and her two sons. The sons took Moabite wives. The name of the first was Orpah and the second, Ruth. They lived there in Moab for the next 10 years. But then the two brothers, Marlon and Kilion, also died. Now the woman was left without either her young men or her husband. One day, she got her act together. She and her two daughters-in-law to leave the country of Moab and set out for home. She'd heard that God had been pleased to visit his people and give them food. And so she started out from the place she'd been living, she and her two daughters-in-law with her, on the road back to the land of Judah. After a short while on the road, Naomi told her two daughters-in-law, 
Go back, go home, live with your mothers, and may God treat you as graciously as you treated your deceased husbands and me. May God give each of you a new home and a new husband. She kissed them, and they cried openly. They said, no, we're going with you to your people. But Naomi was firm, go back. Why would you come with me? Do you suppose that I still have sons in the womb who could become your future husbands? Go back. I'm too old to get a husband. Even if I said there's still hope and this very night got a man and had two sons, can you imagine being satisfied to wait until they were grown? Would you wait that long to get married again? No, this is a bitter pill for me to swallow. It's more bitter for me than for you. God has dealt me a hard blow. Again, they cried openly. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth embraced her and held on. Um, Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is going back home to live with her own people and gods. Go with her. But Ruth said, don't force me to leave you. Don't make me go home. Where you go, I go. Where you live, I'll live. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'll die, and that's where I'll be buried. So help me, God. Not even death itself is going to come between us. When Naomi saw that Ruth had her heart set on going with her, she gave in. The two of them travelled on together to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was soon buzzing. Is this really Naomi after all this time? But she said, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. The strong one has dealt me a bitter blow. I left here full of life. But God has brought me back with nothing. Why would you call me Naomi? God certainly doesn't. The strong one has ruined me. So Naomi was back and Ruth the foreigner with her, back from the country of Moab. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. It so happened that Naomi had a relative by marriage, a man prominent and rich, connected with Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. One day, Ruth said to Naomi, I'm going to work. I'm going to go out to glean among the sheaves, following, over, following after some harvesters who will treat me kindly. Naomi said, go ahead. And so um, Ruth set out. She went and started gleaning in a field, following in the wake of the harvesters. Eventually, she ended up in the part of the field owned by Boaz, her father-in-law Elimelech's relative. A little later, Boaz came out from Bethlehem, greeting his harvesters. God be with you. They replied, and God bless you. Boaz asked his young servant, who was foreman over the farmhands, who's this young woman? Where did she come from? He said, that's the Moabite girl, the one who came with Naomi from the country of Moab. She asked permission, let me glean, she said, and gather among the sheaves following after your harvesters. She's been at it steady ever since, working from early morning till now without so much as a break. Then Boaz spoke kindly to Ruth. Listen, my daughter, from now on, don't go to any other field to glean. Stay right here. Stay close to my young women. Watch where they are harvesting and follow them. Don't you worry about a thing. I've given orders to my servants not to harass you. When you get thirsty, feel free to go and get a drink from the water buckets that the servants have filled. Ruth dropped to her knees and bowed her face to the ground. How does this happen that you should pick me out and treat me so kindly? Me, a foreigner. Boaz answered, I've heard all about you. I've heard about the way you treated your mother-in-law after the death of her husband and how you left your father and mother in the land of your birth and have come to live among a bunch of total strangers. God reward you well for what you've done and with a generous bonus too from God to whom you've come seeking protection under his wings. 
she said, oh, sir, such grace, such kindness, I don't deserve it. You've touched my heart. You treated me as one of your own, and I don't even belong here. At the lunch break, Boaz said, come here, eat some bread, dip it in the wine. So she joined in with the harvesters. She ate her fill, and she even had some left over. When she got up to go back to work, Boaz ordered his servants, let her glean where there's still plenty of grain on the ground. Make it easy for her. Better yet, pull some of the good stuff out and leave it for her to glean. Give her special treatment. Ruth gleaned in the fields until the evening. When she threshed out what she'd gathered, she ended up with nearly a full sack of barley. She gathered up her gleanings, went back to town and showed her mother-in-law. Naomi asked her, so where did you glean today? Whose field? God bless whoever it was who took such good care of you. Ruth told her mother-in-law, the man with whom I work today, his name was Boaz. <gasps> Why, God bless that man, Naomi said. God hasn't quite walked out on me after all. God does still love us in bad times as well as good. Naomi went on, that man, Ruth, he's one of our circle of covenant redeemers, a close relative of ours. Ruth said, well, listen to this. He also told me, stick with my workers until my harvesting is finished. Naomi said, that's wonderful. You do that. You'll be safe in the company of his young women. No danger now of being raped. So, <laughs> seems the strangest response. Anyway, so, <laughs> so Ruth did it. She stuck close to Boaz's young women, gleaning in the fields daily until both the barley and the wheat harvesting were finished. And she continued to live with her mother-in-law. One day, her mother-in-law Naomi said to Ruth, isn't it about time I arranged a good home for you so you can have a happy life? Isn't Boaz our close relative, the one with whose young women you've been working? Maybe it's time to make a move. Tonight is the night of Boaz's barley harvest at the threshing floor. Ooh. Take a bath, put on some perfume, get all dressed up and go to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until the party's well underway. When you see him slipping off to have a sleep, watch where he lies down and then go there. Lie at his feet to let him know that you are available to him for marriage. Then wait and see what he says. He'll tell you what to do. Ruth said, if you say so, I'll do it. She went down to the threshing floor and put her mother-in-law's plan into action. Boaz had a good time. Eating and drinking, he felt great. Then he went off to get some sleep, lying down at the end of a sack of barley. Ruth quietly followed. She lay down to signal her availability for marriage. In the middle of the night, the man was suddenly startled and sat up. What a surprise! A woman asleep at his feet. <laughs> he said, and who are you? She said, I'm Ruth. Take me under your protecting wing. You're my close relative, you know. You do have the right to marry me. He said, God bless you, dear daughter. What a splendid expression of love. <laughs> you could have had your pick of any of the young men around. And now, don't you worry about a thing. I'll do all you could want or ask. Everybody in, in town knows what a courageous woman you are, a real prize. You're right, I am a close relative to you, but there's one even closer than me. So stay the rest of the night. In the morning, if he wishes to exercise his right and responsibility as the closest relative, he will have his chance. But if he's not interested, as God lives, I'll do it. <laughs> now, now go back to sleep. So Ruth slept at his feet, but she got up while it was still dark and she wouldn't be recognised. Then Boaz said, no one must know that Ruth came to the threshing floor. So he said, bring the shawl you're wearing and spread it out. She spread it out, he poured it full of barley and put it on her shoulders. Then she went back to town. When she came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did things go? 
Ruth told her everything the man had done for her, adding, and he gave me all this barley. He told me, you can't go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi said, sit back and relax. Until we find out how things turn out, that man isn't going to fall around. Mark my words, he'll get it all wrapped up by the end of today. <laughs> Boaz went straight to the public square and took his place there. Before long, the closer relative, the one mentioned earlier by Boaz, strolled by. Step aside, old friend, said Boaz. Take a seat. The man sat down. Boaz then gathered ten of the town elders together and said, sit down here with us, we've got some business to take care of. So they sat down. Boaz said to his relative, the piece of property that belonged to our relative Elimelech is being sold by his widow, Naomi, who's just returned from the country of Moab. I thought you ought to know about it. Buy it back if you want. You can make it official in the presence of those sitting here. You have first redeemer rights. But if you don't want it, tell me so I'll know where I stand. You're first in line to do this and I'm next after you. The man said, I'll buy it. Then Boaz added, you realise, don't you, that when you buy the field, you also get Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of our dead relative, along with the responsibility to have children with her to carry on the family line. Oh, said the relative, I don't think I can do that. I'd be jeopardising my own family's inheritance. You go ahead and buy it. You can have my rights. You have the woman. In the olden times in Israel, this is how they handled official business regarding matters of property inheritance. A man would take off his shoe. Have a shoe. A man would take off his shoe and give it to the other person. This was the same as an official seal or a personal signature in Israel. So when Boaz's redeemer relative said, go ahead and buy it, he signed the deal by pulling off his shoe. Boaz then addressed the elders and all the people in the town square. You are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech and Kilion and Marlon, including Ruth. I'll take her as my wife and keep the name of the deceased alive, along with his inheritance. The memory and reputation of the deceased is not going to disappear out of this family or from his hometown. You are witnesses of this today. All the people in the town square backed up the elders and said, yes, we're witnesses. May God make this woman who's coming into your household like Rachel and Leah, the two women who built the family of Israel. May God make you a pillar in Ephrathah and famous in Bethlehem. With the children God gives you from this young woman, may your family rival the family of Perez, the son Tamar, brought to Judah. So Boaz married Ruth. She became his wife. He slept with her. Just to clarify. By God's gracious gift, she conceived and had a son. The town women said to Naomi, Blessed be God, he didn't leave you without a family to carry on your life. He didn't forget you. May this baby grow up to be famous in Israel. He'll make you young again. He'll take care of you in your old age. And this daughter-in-law who's brought him into the world and loves you so much, she's worth more than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and held him in her arms, cuddling him, <coughs> cooing over him and waiting on him. The neighbourhood women called him Naomi's baby boy, but his real name was Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. Right, arms back. Um, why I want us to do that is I think it's just really helpful before we dive straight in, and we've got a small amount of time window this morning to dive into the story, is it's just really good for us to look at the whole of the story. And I'd encourage you over the coming weeks to keep going over 
uh, the story of Ruth, because I, I promise you, the more you get into it, the more you'll get from it. Uh, and next week, we're going to recommend some other resources, I think, that could help us along the journey. But in terms of this morning, where I want to finish off with is actually every story has a beginning. And I think it's important that we therefore start at the beginning. And so what I want us to do is just briefly look at the first five verses of this story, because it's really important to look at those, because they set the context of everything that then goes on. And so we're going to do this by just taking our breath and pausing through them and allowing us to understand and hear the kind of starting point of this story as the original hearers would have heard it. Because at that point, it then allows us to understand the backdrop of this story and therefore how incredible it is. See, the danger is, because we know where the story's going, you want to kind of get towards the end because that's where the good bit is, was actually it's so important to start here and gradually allow the story to build. Because as it builds, it does our hearts good. And so it starts off here. Ruth 1, 1 to 5, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. See, the author wants us to understand this story has a historical background. For the audience that were listening, they could recount when this was. It wasn't their day and age they were living in. They were kind of being reminded of what they'd heard passed from generation to generation of a time that had been before. A time when judges ruled. Now, for any of that original audience, as soon as they heard that, this was a moment in time this story was set when judges ruled was a bad backdrop. Because what this was, is it was an in-between time between the moments of the last great leader, Joshua, of God's people, and then the other leaders that were to emerge through the monarchy from King Saul onwards. Now, King Saul obviously wasn't great at the, uh, at the end, but at the beginning, he was someone they all wanted. And this in-between moment of time was the judges, where there were different leaders that came about, leading different clans. And in it, it was a moment of unbelievable social and religious upset and chaos. And so anyone hearing that this is a story from that period of time thought, man, this is not going to be a good story. The other thing is this was a story, and this, set, this kind of period of time was a period of time where actually the stories that were recounted were of these moments of individuals who stepped forward, often men, who were great military leaders, who led the people in a moment of God rescuing them from the kind of latest calamity that they got themselves into. And so they knew that there's this bit of a historic background. There's this background of a period of time that wasn't a great period of time for the people of God. But the kind of author continues. It says, there was a famine in the land. So the scene set is a period of time where everything is pretty chaotic. It's a period of time where actually no one was on their A game. But more specifically, this is a period of time where actually there's famine in the land. It's a period of time where actually there's immense need, that no one's got enough. That in a moment where actually these people have been promised you're going to go into a land and it's going to flow with milk and honey, you're going to have everything that you need, that suddenly we find actually within this period that seemed so dark in so many different ways, took on an added, added element of darkness as we find there was utter famine and need. And it's from that setting that we then continue. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah. And now in that, it kind of sets the scene. Now, interestingly, for those kind of hearing it, first off, they'd have heard the name Bethlehem. Now, the ironic thing here is that Bethlehem basically meant bread town. 
the town of bread. So you've just been told that this is set in a dark moment of history, a moment of history where there's a famine, and then there's this guy who comes from Breadtown. I don't know, he's like from Warburton's. <laughs> he's from Breadtown, and there he is in Breadtown, and yet it's in total famine. And he decides, together with his wife and two sons, they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This desperate moment calls for desperate measures. And so this guy says, well, with my family of three others, I'm going to take them. We're going to go and live outside of the land that God has given us. We're going to go and live in another people group, the, the Moabites. We're going to go and live amongst them. Now, what we've got to understand in terms of history, even that kind of being mentioned was a big one, because basically the people of God had been led by God to be a people to reveal who God was and to inherit a land in order to be a blessing for all people. However, along the way, there were various people groups they got a bit of a kind of knocking into and didn't get on so well with, and the Moabites were some of them. And so it wasn't like they thought, right, you are arch enemies always. It's just they didn't get on. And actual fact, God had spoken and said, actually, Moabites, well, actually, they, they can't ever really be part of the people of God. Not until 10 generations had passed for their children. And that was only in a mixed marriage. So you find this guy must have been in a desperate point to say, we're going to go from the known security of our home I'm going to leave that and go into the unknown territory of someone else. We're only going to go there for a while. We're only going to live there for a while. Verse 2. The man's name was Lemanech. And that name means God is king. And that's going to be something that actually runs silently through the whole of the story. That God is king. That actually he is one that isn't passively observing. I don't know if you picked that up through the story. It can seem sometimes like, is God going to be here? He seems at one point to be spoken of, and like, oh, this is all God's fault. And suddenly, isn't God had mercy? When Naomi hears that, that Ruth has bumped into the field of her, answer, of her relative, she says, oh, this is God's doing. That God is actively involved in this story as the one who is king. His wife's name was Naomi, and we'll get on to her name in kind of subsequent weeks. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrodites, Ephrodites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. See, suddenly the author takes us from this guy and his wife and two sons who were escaping famine for a period of time to go and live in Moabite territory. To suddenly, by the next verse, he's building the story and says, oh, oh, this is who they are. It isn't just any old bunch. It's a specific individuals. Here are their names. But by this point, we're told they don't just go and live there for a period of time. We're told they went to Moab and lived there. Somewhere along the, li- somewhere along the road, this family had gone from thinking we're only going there for a short period of time while the family, famine is going on to actually let's settle and make our home here. See, sometimes we can find and think, well, just for this little period of time, I'm just, I'm just going to do this. I, I'm just going to take a break from that. I'm just not going to give there. 
And before we know it, what started off as just a, a, a kind of needs moment, and just think this is short term. I'm just going to camp out here for a bit. It's just passing through that you can find you, you've suddenly settled. And what became at first a passing moment becomes the place where you're completely camped out. You've built home there. But this is just the beginning of the story, isn't it? But for some of us, if we're honest, we know we've kind of done that. We hit a moment and thought, this is desperate. And we thought, maybe things just need to change for, for a short period. I'm going to take a break from that. I'm not going to do that. And before we know it, what became a promise of a few weeks became months and years. And we suddenly realized that that thing we took a break from, that moment we thought, let's not do that, has actually become the place where we've now camped out. And for us, it's time to remember, you weren't meant to live there, just for a moment. But the author continues. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. What I love about this story is we've literally just been told, right, this is a setting, history, it's this period of time. You then get introduced, oh, there's this family. Oh, there's a specific family of this. And they go and they go and live in a different territory. They were just going to pass through. They're now camped out there. Then we're just told, oh, and then the husband dies. We're not told how he dies, why he dies. We're just told he's dead. That's like a way to kind of start the story, isn't it? And then, remember him? God is king. Oh, he's dead. I, to be honest, you do find yourself nervously laughing. You think, can I really laugh at this? Yeah, I think you can because I think it's just nuts. And there's moments within the Ruth story that are just like black comedy. You think, really, you've kind of led me into this point. I think I'm starting to like Limelech. <laughs> I, I was starting to imagine what he was like. You know, leading his family, wanting the best for them, wanting to protect them. And now he's dead. I didn't know anything about him. I didn't know how old he was. I didn't know what clothes he liked to wear, whether he had a donkey or a horse. I didn't know those things, but he's dead. And what we're told now is he's not even known in his, his own right as a man. He's just known as Naomi's husband. And she's there left with her two sons. Verse 4. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. We're not told who married who. The author said, this isn't important. They just got married. That's all you've got to know. And they had lived there about 10 years. So what we're told here is that this period of time, this short moment in time where they're thinking, let's escape famine, has become a 10-year occupation. A 10-year occupation where their dads died and now the two sons have married local women. Again, you recall that for the original audience, they're thinking, they, they did what? They camped out in that territory and they married foreign women. Woo! I was about to make a political comment. I'm not going to um, <laughs> behave, Adrian. Um, but at this point, this is a dynamite thing. Well, what's going on? Where's this story going? Verse 5. Both Molon and Kilion also died. Man, they just got married. That's what I've just been told. They've just got married and they're kind of living it out, loving, being married. We know, though, that they've never had children because no children were ever mentioned. So there's obviously something 
Because this is a culture where actually marriage was always going to lead to children. But here there were no children. And now we're told just as suddenly as the dad had died, we're not given any information, we're now told the two sons have died. They're dead. They're gone. This beginning is this. It's dark. (coughs) And it's death, death, and more death. That's the start of this story. And then we're told, if we just go back one slide, because we'll get on to dark, is that we're then told, and Naomi Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Suddenly, the narrator draws us in and says to that backdrop, I now push forward the characters of this story. And the thing is, as the next slide says, it's a dark start. That's this story. We can quickly rush through and think, man, isn't it amazing by the end? No, it's a dark start. It's a dark start where Naomi and these two ladies who are now widowers all three are hopeless. They're within a culture that is dominated by men. That men are the providers. Men are the ones that bring you refuge and home and, and uh, money and provision. And these guys are alone. They have no one. It looks hopeless. They've gone from a place of desperate. Naomi's gone from a place of desperation of famine to now ten years later a point of desperation of being totally alone. This is a dark story at the beginning. A dark story of a reality of hopelessness. And the deal is, it's really important that sometimes we pause in these moments and remind ourselves that actually to live with God at the center doesn't mean that our stories become ones that are from one light to the next light to the next light moment. That actually our stories can take moments that are very dark in their turns. It might not be because suddenly everyone around us who we loved has died. It could be. It might be because of illness. It might be because of our work situation. It might be that something within our life hasn't quite gone as we planned. And suddenly the setting that we're living in, it feels like the hope's being sucked out. And we feel like that this feels hopeless. Now the thing is, the beginning of this story is dark. And we can come to this point and say, well, the reality is sometimes we all can know moments that are dark. Maybe this moment now that you're living through feels pretty dark. The point isn't of this story that we end here. See, if we were to end here, what we're doing is we're pretending that we're the first hearers. And we're pretending like someone stands up and says, I've got a great story. And starts off, literally first five verses, and says, come back. Tomorrow, 7.30 p.m. for the next installment. And I, as we saw, this, this is a story where we see the beginning and we need to understand the beginning because suddenly the rest of the story becomes alive as we understand the beginning. Because the truth is, When you understand how dark it is, suddenly light, when it breaks out, really shines. You see, this story is a story where light breaks out. Light breaks out within darkness. And it's not only important that we look at it within the whole of the story, it's also because we look at it with the lens of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 
We understand that we aren't those who therefore live in moments of isolated bleakness, of thinking everything is dark, everything is hopeless, because his desire, as has always been the desire, is to flood our lives with his light. Now, within this story, what you find is that this light breaks forth throughout the story through one word, a word that we're going to come to appreciate week on week. It's a word that is uh, in the Hebrew is hesed, or hechet, I think is how he'd say it. But um, H-E-S-E-D, none of you know, you won't ever believe me because I sound convincing then. Probably isn't like that. But that word hesed equals or means loyal, loving kindness. It's a beautiful word. That in that one word, what is conveyed is this deep sense of devotion to someone. Out of a deep sense of love unconditionally to that person. That then causes the person who feels that way towards someone else to operate in utter kindness. In other words, to seek to do the best they can for the other. And Ruth is a story of two individuals who encompass this. We're going to discover along the way. Because out of that dark beginning, what we'll find is this light breaks forth of Hesed, of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth, who offers this loyal, loving kindness to Naomi that warms and melts her heart that feels so hopeless. Boaz, who in turn reveals to Ruth this loyal, loving kindness that then melts her heart and causes her to live totally different. And yet both become these shadows of this greater story of Hesed that is throughout the whole of the story and keeps being pointed to, is the one who encompasses what it is to be loyal, loving, and kind. And that's God. So that in any moment throughout this story, we're going to find within the dark beginnings, this light breaks forth. That as people encounter the loyal, loving kindness of Ruth or the loyal, loving kindness of Boaz, actually the first person they point to is God. They say, oh, this is God. Because it is who God is in his very nature. And you see, for each of us, when we get to this point of thinking and believing that it is dark and feels hopeless, that it isn't that we look back at the story of Ruth and say, oh, this is what's going to give me hope. Rather, it's in the very character of God and what we've understood through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which is the ultimate demonstration of hesed, of loyal, loving, kindness, Because what we realize is in the moment of greatest darkness in the world was the moment on the cross where Jesus died and was buried in a tomb. And you thought, man, this is it. This is done and dusted. That suddenly at that darkest moment, we discover the greatest light bursts forth. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead in order to say, the reason for this was because of my loyal, loving kindness to the whole world. In order there would never be a barrier to anyone in darkness knowing this light. In order that any one of us could hit life moments that could feel hopeless and yet could look at an empty tomb, an empty cross, and then see and experience a risen Jesus who says, actually, in this moment where it feels dark and hopeless, I want to come and burst in with my light that brings loyal, loving kindness to you in this point now so where we start off with in this story is with an invitation an invitation to every single one of us to continue to taste the hesed 
of God. The loyal, loving kindness of God revealed through Jesus in this moment now. Maybe your life is going well. Maybe everything feels the top of the world. You think, man, my story doesn't begin like Ruth's at this point. It doesn't matter. This, the invitation is still there. Would you not still want a taste of that loyal, loving kindness of God revealed through Jesus? But maybe it isn't like that. Maybe it is more like Ruth's at the moment. Maybe it feels like circumstances have led you to a point where it just feels hopeless. And in that moment there, God rushes in and says, in the darkest place, the light seems brightest. And our invitation is therefore to taste again and see that his loyal, loving kindness is for us now. So that's where we're going to end this morning. Can I just pray for us? And then if you've got kids, I'd encourage you to go and get them because I reckon they want to see you. Um, but can we close our eyes? God, I thank you so much for being with us this morning. God, I thank you that you promised to always journey with us, to never depart us, never to leave us. And I just want to ask God, would you cause us to continuously live, understanding that within our lives, whatever turns they take, however light or dark it feels, or however light or dark it is, that God, your longing is to meet us with your loving, loyal kindness. And I want to pray specifically for some individuals this morning who I know are in this room, who just know it just feels dark at the moment. It's started to feel hopeless. I pray, would you come and would you rush in and remind them afresh that actually your resurrection, Jesus, means light will forever burst into any darkness. And you want us to taste and see that you are loyal. You're not going anywhere. You are loving. You love us more than we could ever ask or imagine. And you are kind. You want our best. And ask, would you come and bring that about this morning? Amen.